Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. I'm very excited to be part of what I see as a public conversation. I hope it's going. I hope it's going to lead to a conversation. This material, um, but before I start, I guess I want to note that these views are my own, and most of the points I will be making are backed by research and also by my own personal experience. But I know that they may not sit comfortably with everyone in the room, and I simply ask you to listen and consider what I have to say, as I've got some very serious issues to raise and I'm keen to get some feedback on my analysis. So I'm glad that uh, this coincides with February um, and uh, that we're so close to Valentine's Day, um, as February is a significant month for anti-fundamentalist feminist organizing. That first image there, um, the pink jadi, it represents a campaign led by the consortium of pub-going, loose and forward women in India in response to the Hindu fundamentalist group Sri Ram Sena's violence against a group of women at a pub in Mangalore in the southern Indian state of Karnataka. The Sri Ram Sena's leader had declared that it was unacceptable for girls to go to the pub, reflecting a general anxiety about women drinking alcohol and mixing with men. The group reifies Hindu goddesses that are associated with chastity and subservience, rather than those that are connected with expressions of sexuality and desire. And there are, there is that range within Hinduism. So this feminist pushback against fundamentalist moral policing came to be known as the Pink Chadi campaign. Chadi is the Hindi word for knickers or underpants, as the consortium encouraged women across the country to send approximately 4,000 pink underwear to the fundamentalists as a mark of irreverence, I think. Sadly, as the strength of Hindu Hindu fundamentalism has grown with um, Modi's lead, there are an increasing number of vigilante groups now that are taking the law into their own hand um, and are involved in assaulting, abusing, and opposing male and female um, couples, public displays, who, who, who make any kind of public displays of affection, and also women who try to access pubs and clubs. But Valentine's Day is also the anniversary of the passing of a fatwa, or religious edict, calling for the killing of author Salman Rushdie for the publication of this book, The Satanic Verses. Rushdie was accused of literary colonialism and religious pornography. This narrative brought together anti-imperialist sentiment and arguments about the need to protect the sexual purity of Islam. The events that followed are now widely known as the Rushdie Affair. You may be familiar with that phrase, the Rushdie Affair. Um, With a move that started with politicians in India, the Rushdie Affair marks the beginnings of transnational Muslim fundamentalist mobilizations, as groups in India, the UK, and Iran attempted to get the book banned and stage public book burnings. In the UK in particular, and this is a UK-specific context, some minorities called for the extension of blasphemy blasphemy laws, which at the time only protected Christianity. For these reasons, then, I'm a strong advocate of Valentine's Day. I really am. And while we risk being accused of being co-opted by capitalism and westernization, I implore you all 
to use next Monday, if you can, to push back on religious prescriptions on relationships, writing and art, and to celebrate your, your right to love whoever you want. So, Women Against Fundamentalism was formed during the height of the Rushdie Affair. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that organization. The group was led by minoritized women who saw attempts by South Asian male religious leaderships to censor Rushdie as a struggle for representation, voice, authenticity, and legitimacy. WAF was founded, so Women Against Fundamentalism, I'm going to refer to as WAF, was founded as a feminist coalition of women from a diverse range of ethnic, national, class, professional, and religious backgrounds. We were united by our, by our shared political values as feminists and as dissenters within our communities and also within our immediate political circles. So in this vein, WAF coined the slogan, Rushdie's right to write is our right to dissent. The fo this photograph in, um, on the slide is of WAF's public stand against a large anti-Rushdie march scheduled to go through central London in May 1989. This photograph, I think, captures an iconic moment where um, WAF are positioned on the one hand between fundamentalists and white fascists on the other side. The images from this demonstration provide strong visual representations of WAF's political location, of women from diverse backgrounds shouting slogans at ethnic minority fundamentalists demanding censorship, and at white fascists hurling racist abuse. WAF did not focus solely on the violence committed by Muslim fundamentalists, and that was really important to the project. They also spoke about the power of Christian fundamentalism and the atrocities committed against Muslims by a resurgent Hindu right engaged in, in genocidal violence against Muslims at Ayodhya in 1991 and Gujarat in 2002. Throughout its life, WAF had the express objective of challenging the rise of fundamentalism in all religions. Its members included women from a wide range of ethnic, national, and religious backgrounds who were primarily united by their position as feminists and as dissenters within their communities. So for, to understand what fundamentalism is and to define it, I draw quite heavily on the definition of fundamentalism, though not limited to that, defined by WAF and then developed later by a feminist dissent, a journal on gender and fundamentalism. Um, and that definition states that fundamentalism refers to modern political movements that use religion to gain or consolidate power, whether working within or in opposition to the state. Um, we strictly differentiate fundamentalism from religious observance, which we see as a matter of individual choice. And WAF established itself as a women-only organization because it recognized that the control of women's bodies and minds lies at the heart of the fundamentalist agenda. Fundamentalists perpetuate women's role as upholders of community morals and traditions, and women who refuse this role risk being demonized, cast out of their communities, and subjected to physical violence or even killed. And we can add to this, um, sorry, the, the quote might not quite work with what I have um, explained here, but we can add to this talk or Brecht's assertion that religious fundamentalists are modern movements, but their primary objective is to reinstate clerical power and religious authority. So it's a, it's a reversion, um, it's a push back against secularism, basically. WAF women persistently asserted women's right to contest and doubt manifestations of religion, culture, tradition, and norms, and to challenge self-styled leaderships that claim to represent them. This did not mean that WAF was opposed to religion per se, 
but rather that its members emphasize the crucial role of secular spaces in ensuring equality for people of all religions and none. So I just want to have a little pit stop here um, to talk about terminology. In its later years, WAF discussed and then rejected the, proposed, uh, the proposal to change its name from the singular fundamentalism to the plural fundamentalisms because it wanted to emphasize the continuities rather than the differences across authoritarian mobilizations within all religions. Um, and on the issue of radicalization, so I just want to clear that up um, because what we're doing, what, and this is still my feeling, is that it's really important to highlight um, the things that are common, and I'm going to be doing that in my present today, presentation today. Um, on radicalization, I would tend to agree with Daniel DeHannis's um, discussion on radicalization, that it does more to conceal what is happening than to help us understand it. But I don't agree with, you, might, you may or may not hear from Jasjit Singh, I don't know if you will, but I don't agree with his perspective that Sikh radicalization is not a thing as such. It is um, more uh, a, a, a phrase that is being used to describe all forms of Sikh um, engagement with political activity. I want to argue that we are talking about a specific thing, and this is the problem with government um, discourse, is that it doesn't allow you to get to the specific formations and an understanding of the specific formations that we need to challenge um, and deal with. So I think we are dealing with and but a kind of an and but also situation <laughs> where multiple issues, personal and political, persuade people to join or follow fundamentalist organizations, including um, the proactive mobilizations of those organizations, which is often kind of left out of the picture. Um, but the tendency of the state, and this government in particular, is to address it as either a security issue that presents a threat to the nation state, or as an individual pathology that needs to be managed through neoliberal risk management frameworks. Neither, I'd say, is a useful approach and leads to many things remaining hidden from view. I also want to note that I don't agree with the anti-racist pushback against the word terrorism, and often even Amnesty International for a while had the word terror terrorism in quote marks, um, as, if it, if, as if that isn't also a thing. Um, as simply a because what anti-racists argue is that it's simply a mechanism for criminalizing dissent. I follow Karima Benoun's uh, line here, and I really hope you'll take some time to look at her work because it really is brilliant that there is an international agreement on the term terrorism. There is an international legal agreement on the term terrorism. It is meaningful, and what we need to be doing is challenging both fundamentalist violence and state abuses of power. It's not an either-or situation. I also draw a lot on Chetan Butt's detailed analysis of right-wing political formations and his assertion that both within left circles and on the part of the state, there seems to be an inability to make clear ethical distinctions between political formations that are liberatory or, or emancipatory on the one hand and authoritarian and oppressive on the other. And we really do need to learn to make those distinctions. Um, tactically and conceptually, otherwise you end up collapsing the people that are um, going out to Syria to join ISIS with the same people that may be going out, such as Anna Campbell, going out to join a resistance against ISIS and a pushback against authoritarian religion. Um, and I, we do need to push back against authoritarian religion. 
So tactically and conceptually now, I'm at this, this is, my, this is the stage that I'm at, um, I'm leaning more and more towards the term racial and religious supremacism to get people to see the connections between fundamentalists and the far right and the alt-right. And that seems to have some sort of, it's been, uh, for, for decades now, I've been trying to get various anti-racist um, comrades um, and organizations to take fundamentalism seriously and they've not been willing to budge and often groups of the, the organizations that I've been involved in have been accused of fueling racism um, if anything rather than trying to challenge um, the resurgence of religious authoritarianism so I think that there's more purchase in getting them to recognize that there are connections between racial and religious supremacist formations that's, I think, probably a longer conversation in terms of tactics and strategy. So one of the readings I've recommended for today's lecture, then, is a literature review on the links between radicalization and violence against women and girls. So take, do take a look at that for the detail of what I'm about to kind of give you an overview of. Um, but on the first point there, anti-feminism and physical violence, racial and religious supremacist organizations share a nostalgic harking back to golden days of the past. And there are gendered dimensions to this nostalgia, as these were times when men's superior position was secure. As already mentioned in the, in the discussion on Rushdie, they are preoccupied with ways to stem what they see as the dilution of their group. And they see purity and moral degeneracy of the group as embodied in women's behavior, dress, and contact with others. Within this worldview, then, feminism and its defense of the right to intellectual, bodily, sexual, and material autonomy is understood as an attack on men's rights and status. Fundamentalist projects specifically perpetuate male privilege. Women transgressing fundamentalist prescriptions have been subjected to public beatings and lethal violence. Karima Benoun's book, again, Your Fatwa Does Not Apply Here, is unique in the way that she has documented the threats and violence against people of Muslim heritage, artists, and feminist activists that dissent from fundamentalist codes and orders. The reader is made aware of the immense risks that each of them has taken in the face of fundamentalist violence and power within their areas. On sexual violence, um, that's also used as a punitive, in a punitive way to deal with anyone that is seen to transgress norms and rules. And this continues to hang over women as a threat to stop them transgressing prescribed norms. A common theme in the literature on religious supremacists is the way that sex and sexuality shape the contours of their projects. Our women, our men, other women, and other men are differentially sexualized. For religious supremacists, women inside the group are desexualized and divested of any sexual autonomy, while women outside the group are hypersexualized and deemed unworthy of respect or protection. The literature on Islamist, so Hindu, Muslim, and Sikh fundamentalism, suggests that they all desexualize their women, the women within the group, and divest them of any sexual autonomy, making them just the reproductive properties of that group. The literature on Hindutva groups and on ISIS suggests that they are using sexual violence as a weapon in order to assert their dominance, to humiliate and destroy the enemy, and as a weapon of terror in the knowledge that women and communities live in the fear of the threat of violence, of sexual violence. And particularly brutal acts of sexual violence against Muslim women 
by the Hindu right was central to the Gujarat genocide in 2002. So it's been perpetuated by a range of organizations, uh, a range of fundamentalist organizations. So sexual violence is justified as part of an attack on the identity of the opposing group. Presumably that women are vested with that identity. And so violation of women becomes a strike at the heart of the opponent's identity and property. Sexual violence is a form of terror and perpetrators are keenly aware of the long-term impact of their victims. Sexual exploitation, there's also some uh, evidence um, of both Christian and Muslim fundamentalist organizations trafficking girls and young women for early or forced marriage and offering them as a reward to male group members. The largest chunk of that literature, um, probably comes as no surprise, tends to focus on ISIS and its treatment of Yazidi women. But there is also some information on Boko Haram and Christian sects, including analysis of the trafficking of girls by Canadian church leaders who are using their power to pressurize young women into marriages with much older men in exchange for family business and social status. This practice is exacerbated by the fact that children are educated within these communities and not exposed to alternative perspectives. So gender, and they're, they're, they're educated separately as girls and boys. So gender segregation is a key mechanism for enabling this practice. Then there's, a, um, there's patriarchal household gender regimes. While there are limited insights on the personal lives of fundamentalist actors, um, the literature does indicate that the patriarchal family and gender inequality lie at the heart of fundamentalist projects. These are justified using religious injunctions of obedience and authority. The same injunctions are used to legitimize intimate partner violence and sexual coercion. Literature on Muslim and Sikh fundamentalism highlights how women are seen as the property of the group, chastity is emphasized for women within the group, sex is restricted to procreation, and there is an expectation of the wife's sexual subservience to the husband. Moreover, the enactment of religious laws and codes of conduct, and this is a serious issue in this country as well, in terms of kind of the state's almost negotiation around religious laws. It can talk about that separately, if you like. Um, the enactment of religious laws and codes of conduct to govern interpersonal relationships is intended to infantilize women. It diminishes their rights and makes them the property of the husband and his family. Also, Torkel Breck, again, his book is really interesting on Christian fundamentalism, notes that male headship of the Christian fundamentalist family is the foundation for gender inequality within the household. As women are expected to be nurturers, while, while men are breadwin breadwinners and decision makers. Alongside this, religious texts are used to, to justify differential household roles and claims that men and women have differential sexual instincts. Um, making women responsible for their husbands' uncontrollable sexual needs. Moreover, problems within marriages and households are put down to men failing to assert sufficient authority on the one hand and assertive women that are not submitting to the will of God on the other. Also, the literature suggests that intimate partner violence is supported as a way to enforce these gender roles. Gender inequality, or more specifically, women's inferiority in these neo-patriarchal -patri households is deemed the will of God. Clearly, there are, <coughs> where there are different roles, um, there is also propensity for financial dependency and therefore also coercive control and economic abuse. So finally, in terms of that overview, um, on assaults on um, intellectual uh, autonomy, 
Malala Yousafzai is, I guess, a classic example of, of fundamentalists preventing girls from access to education that might lead them to develop critical dissenting views and seek independence. Other examples of a clampdown on intellectual autonomy or, or artistic autonomy um, are the ongoing murder of atheists and rationalists in Bangladesh, but also censorship of music, dance, and arts. So what I'm going to do now is either one or two example, two or three examples, depending on the time, um, try to sort of uh, focus now on three concrete examples of the assault on women's rights to intellectual, bodily, sexual, and material autonomy. And these examples also, in turn, tell us a great deal about fundamentalist strategies. That is the way that they use social and political spaces to impose their version of religion and instate privileges for their religion, for, for men, for their religion, for their God, and for their group of people. Historically, fundamentalist organizations that might be diametrically opposed on other issues have easily aligned on opposition to abortion, putting paid to the claim that fundamentalists are inherently insular or separatist. More recently, Christian right organizations have been campaigning against women's reproductive rights in the US. You've probably heard about some of these campaigns. Argentina, Poland, Brazil, and Ireland. And here I want to highlight two particular organizations in the UK, which you may or may not be familiar with, the Christian People's Alliance and the Conservative Christian Fellowship, both of whom rely on the exponential growth of evangelical organizations in the UK. One draws its inspiration from Christian democratic parties across Europe, and the other has strong ties with American groups. Around a decade ago, the Christian People's Alliance, or CPA, gained legitimacy and local support in the London borough of Newham because of their vociferous challenge to an undemocratic local council. That's not the council of the current mayor, that's the council of the previous mayor, and the incursion of large corporations. They attached themselves to a class-based critique of re regeneration to oppose Newham Council's plans to close a popular local market and replace it with luxury flats. They were also one of the few local voices to stand on the side of poor residents against the establishment of a super casino. These are prime examples of the way that they positioned themselves as moral swords of justice. However, it's also true that this moral sword of justice is double-edged. Sorry, that's a bit icky, but it's, <laughs> it's double-edged. As at the very top of their list of moral concerns is the sanctity of life, from, con from conception to death, and their opposition to abortion. So the CPA was established in 1999 out of the Movement for Christian Democracy, which had been established by three cross-party Christian MPs, including David Alton, who is best known for his opposition to abortion and euthanasia. I don't know if any of you have heard of him. I guess, that, I guess there's an age difference here. Um, their founding document, the Mayflower Declaration, sets out the organization's worldview, um, a combination of centrist views on the economy, a concern with poverty and support for state welfare provision, so a, a support for state welfare provision, but also communitarian autonomy is demanded for the church and for the family. So they don't want states intervening in the family. And fundamentalist views on reproduction and sexuality. So a mix there. The Mayflower Dec Declaration expressly opposes the, the destruction of the unborn. Um, abortion is startlingly referred to as one example of international cultures of death. And this is coupled with the claim that over 7 million unborn children have lost their lives to abortion since the passing of the 1967 Abortion Act. 
These cultures of death include assisted reproductive technologies, embryology research, and euthanasia or assisted dying. In Newham, then, just going back to Newham for a minute, the CPA's cutting-edge critique of the impact on regen of regeneration on local people then descended into an assault on women's reproductive rights as they joined a multi-faith picket outside the Newham offices of the British Pregnancy Advisory Service, or BPAS. You may know of them as BPAS in Stratford. They use the same language, this is peculiar, they, they use the same language to describe BPAS as they had um, to use to oppose the luxury flats and the casino. So BPAS is a charity, were described as a large money-spinning business with an interest in doing as many abortions as possible. <clears throat> the CPA joined forces with the Society for the Protection of the Unborn, or SPUC, um, to gather signatures for a petition that attempted to scaremonger local residents by claiming that BPAS was dis uh, disposing of human remains in their local bins. Um, in a curious shade on night and day, they claimed their opposition to abortion as a defense of women's rights. And this is a, this is a real twist in anti-abortion campaigning, as preventing the exploitation of women by capitalist abortion providers. So in addition to this, a new wave of anti-abortion activism is now embedded within the Conservative Party. Um, courtesy of the influence of the Conservative Christian Fellowship, or CCF, I'll call them here, which was founded in 1990 by a group of students at Exeter University, the CCF is now a major reason for the incorporation of committed Christians into the Conservative Party who gained the support of evangelical church networks in order to oust secularist, pro-choice, pro-euthanasia MPs. I mean, they directly targeted those seats. And they, and they won because of the mobilization through evangelical churches. Reproductive rights have been at the top of the agenda of at least two CCF members. The first is Nadine Dorries, MP for uh, Mid-Bedfordshire, and the second is Fiona Bruce, MP for Congleton. I don't know if Fiona Bruce still has a seat, actually. Nadine Dorries is now the Culture Secretary, and you may have seen uh, one of her many recent in interviews defending Boris Johnson. We don't need to go there. Um, since her election in 2005, Doris has relentlessly campaigned for a change to abortion time limits and vociferously criticized BPAS, the Pregnancy Advisory Service, and Mary Stopes International, um, promoting instead the need for faith-based interventions. She's argued that abortion providers should be prevented from delivering pre-abortion counseling because of an alleged, because of an alleged uh, vested interest in encouraging women to choose abortion. BPAS, on their part, claim that Doris's interventions are linked to the, to the import of a new wave of US evangelical activism into Britain. Doris has been funded by the Christian Legal Center, which has represented several Christian claims of religious discrimination, and is allied to the right-wing American group, the Alliance Defense Fund. Moreover, the Lawyers Christian Fellowship drafted the amendment that Doris championed in 2008. But both the CPA and the CCF claim that women are being exploited, abused, and traumatized by the abortion industry, it's a, this, the industry. Both claim to be on the side of women's rights, something that Ellis identified as a specific tactic posited by one of the founders of Pro-Life America um, in context where a full repeal of abortion legislation seems unlikely. Um, it was a man who advised abortion campaigners to then um, argue that this is um, in the interests of women. 
These are two spokes of a, a resurgent anti-abortion activism in the UK that has been particularly aggressive and intimidating and involved challenging women as they attempt to enter the clinics. Um, it's involved covert filming that undermines women's medical anonymity. It's involved the use of placards displaying, displaying photographs of bloodied and dismembered fetuses and the distribution of lies <coughs> about the impact of abortion on women's health, including claims that abortion is linked to cancer, which has no basis in science. Because of the intensity and frequency of these demonstrations then, abortion providers appeal to the police and have in some places managed to gain a buffer zone between the clinics and the protesters. You may have seen the first image on, on the news, um, but this is just to highlight the fundamentalists are employing many strategies to oppose the teaching of relationships, education, um, and sex education in their local areas. And these images reflect two such approaches, two very distinct approaches. And the second one, I would say, the one by SRE Islamic is the one that's going to be more effective and the one that's been underway for some time. And it attracts far less um, public attention. The first image is of, of protests outside Anderton Park School in Spark Hill in 2019. The school had introduced teaching on family diversity through the use of a series of children's books which showed the lives of different types of families, including those with gay um, and lesbian parents. Fundamentalist activists then mobilized against this teaching and claimed that Muslim children were being sexualized and harmed by exposure to these books. They expressed an anxiety that the school were attempting to turn their children into homosexuals. And they even claimed that these materials legitimized pedophilia. I attended one of their public meetings during which um, they made a lot of effort and really emphasized that they don't have any problems with homosexuality um, as a lifestyle choice. So they re regard homosexuality as a lifestyle choice, but that that choice could not be a way of life for anyone subscribing to Islam. And it was a case of, you know, let's agree to differ. You live your life and I'll live mine and never the twain shall meet. Um, but in a heated debate with the activists after the meeting, and it, was, it wasn't difficult to, to, to get them ranting, actually, as soon as the cameras were turned off, there was a completely different tone where they were literally ranting about sodomy and disease and the un-Islamic nature and imposition of homosexuality, out and out uh, homophobia. While the, while, now, the Birmingham protests were regularly featured in the news, and this, but this strategy was actually rejected by most anti-RSE groups and groups that are opposed to relationships and sex education up and down the country, um, of which there are um, uh, Jewish, very active Jewish and Christian groups as well, not just Muslim groups. And those anti-RSE groups feel it is more effective to organize quietly through spaces that have been created by government policy itself, where the new requirement to teach relationships and sex education leaves head teachers to negotiate the content with local communities and parents. So one such group, SRE Islamic, has been campaigning against all forms of sex education since 2008. It is led by a guy called Yusuf Patel, who was previously a member of the group Hizbut Tahrir, which is now banned in a number of countries. In 2019, I attended one of his meetings in Newham, at which he implored all parents to activate their parental rights and lobby their head teachers, um, lobby the head teachers of the schools that their children were attending to impact and basically censor the content that they plan to deliver. 
He has also been encouraging and supporting local parents to become school governors, noting that that is the most effective way in which to ensure that the content reflects their interpretation of, uh, the, of Islam. So SRE Islamic insists that Muslims cannot be gay, and in answer to a question about Islam and equality, he very clearly announced that Islam doesn't sub subscribe to the values um, of equality and that parents have a duty to defend their religious principles first and foremost. Now, this basically, this whole mobilization, both forms, um, goes completely against all of the things that women and children's organizations have argued that compulsory sex education and clear discussions, including at primary school level, clear discussions about healthy relationships are vital for tackling violence against women and children and for promoting equality. RSC is important for equipping children and young people with the knowledge that they need to resist pressure, to be able to name violence as well. And sexual abuse doesn't start at 12. Within the family, it can definitely start in primary years. Um, and there's considerable research underlying the need to do so. A final point on them, I'm not going to be able to say everything about women's groups, but a final point on this is, um, as it also reveals either opportunistic, going back to that connections between religious and racial supremacist formations, um, they both seem somehow to reveal either opportunistic strategies or shared values of religious and racial supremacists, as the organizers of the protests outside Anderton Park School align themselves with the journalist Katie Hopkins, who has been banned from Twitter for her racist zeal. While SRE uh, Islamic had joined the same multi-faith pickets of the British Pregnancy Advisory Service offices that I referred to a few minutes ago, which included the Christian People's Alliance, which is itself actually an anti-Muslim organization that feeds anxiety about Islam and asserts the rightful superiority of Christianity across Europe. And that those connections really need to be explored. So I want to touch just for five minutes, I hope I'm going to do this in five minutes, um, on something that's very, very close um, for me um, as a woman f from a Sikh background. I'm not religious, but from a Sikh background. So in Britain, within minoritized communities, the resurgence of religion as a political identity actually began in earnest in the 1970s with Sikhs mobilizing support for a separate theocratic state in India called Khalistan. In fact, it is through seeing the direct impact of those mobilizations in Southall, where I grew up, out on the outskirts of West London, that I came to be interested in challenging fundamentalism altogether. Two more recent manifestations of Khalistani politics have sought to recalibrate control over Sikh women and children. The first photograph shows events of September 2016, when 55 members of Sikh Youth UK claimed to be involved in a peaceful protest against an Anand garage or Sikh marriage, what is the name, that's the name of a Sikh marriage, um, of a Sikh woman to a non-Sikh man. This was actually the fifth of a series of aggressive obstructions of interfaith marriages scheduled to take place in Sikh places of worship. Protesters claimed to be defending the Rehat Mariada, which is a code of contact developed in the 1930s, which reserves the Anand garage for Sikhs only. And it is a highly gendered code that states a Sikh's daughter, not a Sikh's son, a Sikh's daughter must be married to a Sikh. And it tells Sikh women to treat their Sikh husbands with deferential solicitude. And it's important to know that all five of the violent incursions on interfaith marriages had been of Sikh women attempting to marry non-Sikh men. 
The protest was clearly intended to, to intimidate. It's, a, it's declared a peaceful protest, but it was clearly intended to intimidate as protesters turned up with heads and faces covered, which seems bizarre now because everybody's heads and faces covered, but at that time, obviously, you've got to put it in that context. Um, and also, some of them were carrying kirpans, and um, there's a lot of Twitter debate about this, but um, kirpans can be seen as symbols of Khalsa Sikhism, but they also literally symbolize um, defense of the faith and have been used, kirpans are the ceremonial swords, and they have been used as weapons during feuds and infighting within Gurdwaras. As with these other episodes, um, the protesters filmed the incident and circulated the film footage in a move to publicly shame Sikhs pushing against deeply conservative prescriptions. They also positioned themselves as a pious antidote to corrupt Gurdwara committee members who were accused of compromising the religion to make money. So there's that anti-capitalist um, critique again. And in fact, they were not, as they claimed, just protecting the Sikh wedding ceremony from misuse. They were opposing interfaith relationships altogether, as some of the film footage showed protesters accusing elders and Gurdwara committee members of validating Sikh women's marriages to white people and black people. The picture on the right is, I don't know if anyone's familiar with this guy, um, Mohan Singh of the Sikh Awareness Society. Within the last couple of years, Sikh fundamentalists discovered the political mileage of public policy attention to child sexual exploitation following a series of headline cases in which networks of predominantly Pakistani men were convicted of sexually exploiting white Sikh girls. Sorry, white British girls. Um, Sikh fundamentalists claimed that girls from their communities had also been targeted by Muslim men. In September 2013, the BBC, this is I found incredibly shocking, the BBC's Inside Out produced a documentary publicly applauding the services of Mohan Singh of the Sikh Awareness Society. He's also been applauded by Katie Hopkins, um, the racist journalist that I mentioned earlier, for supposedly rescuing Sikh women from the clutches of Muslim men. Twitter activity after the showing of that documentary was very telling. While outraged Sikh women said they would never trust Mohan Singh and his men to assist them with any difficulties, Sikh men felt vindicated for their own communal anxieties about Muslim men. Since 2013, Mohan Singh has become something of a celebrity and a regular speaker at Gurdwaras and student, uh, Sikh student societies up and down the country, whipping up anxieties about women's relationships and the activities of young people. At one of his talks at a Gurdwara in East London, which I attended with a friend, there was deafening silence in the room as he told a pack audience, men, women, um, young people, and small children, that their daughters and sisters are being raped by Muslim men. A series of pictures of Asian men convicted of sexual offenses against children were referred to as a long list of Muslim perpetrators. These images ran seamlessly then into paintings of Mughal warriors beheading and suffocating Sikh leaders during the 1500s in order to make the argument that Muslims represent a historical and a contemporary threat to the Sikh nation or qualm. But also Mohan Singh admonished the liberalism of Sikh parents with respect to alcohol consumption um, and allowing their children to choose their own partners. No mention was made of the fact that violence and abuse is still far more likely to take place within the home and, and nor were there words of condemnation for familial sexual abuse perpetrated by Sikhs themselves. So I don't have time today to give you an overview 
of the constellation of Sikh organizations, because there are a number of them, that are politically engaged in what I believe are the main components of Sikh fundamentalist worldview. I just want to underline the following six points. Both of these examples speak volumes, firstly, both of these examples speak volumes on the relationship between gender, marriage, and the monopoly on violence, and the related call for muscular masculinity. Secondly, it's clear that the focus is on restricting women and girls' sexual autonomy and espousing total control um, of the of, by the patriarchs. Reference to the Rehat Mariada are attempts to impose chastity and subservience. Thirdly, and connected to the anxieties of fundamentalists across the board, this takes place against a backdrop of anxiety about the size of the Qom, or mythical Sikh nation, about its depleted numbers, and about Sikh children and young people straying from the religion. This is an implicit uh, assumption. There's an implicit objection to people um, that don't profess the same fundamentalist interpretation of Sikhism. So the, the idea that, that numbers are... are um, falling totally ignores um, minor, minority sects within Sikhism. At risk of stereotyping myself and others, I can proudly assert that Sikhs are notorious for their love of alcohol um, and large parties. I don't know if other people are aware of that here. Um, and I would even say that we host um, probably the best weddings. <laughs> I'll put that forward. But these examples represent a huge anxiety about women drinking. Um, there is a lot of victim blaming in Mohan Singh's uh, presentations as he shows images of intoxicated young women lying face down on the floor, often to the horror of his audiences. What starts as basic victim blame when it comes to sexual violence as typical victim blaming images, um, victim blame of Sikh women for sexual assault, then roots back to accusations that parents have lost control of their children. At the end of the day, he argues, it's fathers that have lost control of their households to Western society and to Islam. It's their fault that Sikh children and young people do not know and practice the religion as per their fundamentalist interpretation of it. This is ultimately the reassertion of patriarchal control over women and children. Nothing is directed at Sikh men. It's either the fault of alcohol or the fault of the mother, or the fault of Muslims. And this is in spite of growing attention by Sikh women's groups to sexual abuse by religious hierarchies within Gurdwaras in the UK, Canada, and India. This is a massive campaign, it's a snowballing campaign that's, that's picked up in the last, I'd say, couple of years. Fifthly, these campaigns are undoubtedly terrorizing at multiple levels, and I know this for myself, um, how frightening it is to face um, threats of violence from Sikh funda fundamentalist men when I've drawn attention to their politics and their political histories. And actual violence is taking place, as we know, from some criminal prosecutions of men that have been attacked by other men projected as blasphemers. Sorry, criminal prosecutions of men that have attacked other men that have been projected as blasphemers. And also from the violence at the Birmingham Rep Theatre when Gurpreet Kaur Bhatti attempted to stage a play about rape and sexual exploitation within a Sikh place of worship. But in addition to this, the threat of violence itself is a strong mechanism for silencing dissent. And I know this personally as well, as I married an Italian and the door previously opened to a Gurdwara blessing or a Gurdwara ceremony was slammed shut by my father's anxiety 
that um, it was going to attract attention. The campaign against interfaith relationships has involved shaming families and a forceful withdrawal of legitimacy for anyone marrying outside the patriarchal parameters of the Rehat Mariada. And that would include all the Sikh sects and traditions that do not follow the Khalsa version of Sikhism. So finally, not dissimilar to the points made about the, the Birmingham um, anti-RSE protesters, Mohan Singh has been taking Tommy Robinson of the far-right English Defense League into Gurdwaras to support his arguments about the innate depravity of Muslim men. That is another reason why we need to look at the connections between racial and religious supremacist mobilizations. So just the, my final two points are really about Joan Smith's work, because I've talked a lot about violence against women and girls being a central mechanism for exercising control um, by fundamentalists. And in uh, Joan Smith um, offers an interesting take on this. So in 2017, five terrorist attacks in England in the space of just five months, the personal political trajectories of eight men set the mood music for discussions on pathways into and the prevention of terrorism. Their stories provide key insights into the array of issues and tactics with which counter-terrorism measures need to contend, but also they highlight the immense flaws and inconsistencies in the British state's counter-terrorism work. In the wake of these attacks, the feminist journalist Joan Smith proffered a new take on the term homegrown, which you probably saw um, Daniel refer to in the first um, lecture. Smith investigated the personal lives of men that committed acts of terrorism in the UK, France, Spain, Australia, and the USA. She argues that they share histories of interpersonal violence, whether as perpetrators and or as victims. She therefore argues that there is a connection between terrorism as public male violence and domestic abuse as private male violence. So essentially, terrorism and radicalization is male violence. That's her, that's her bottom line. She provides a compelling account, actually, of the multiple ways that violence against women and girls, including domestic and sexual violence, stalking, harassment, and sexual exploitation, feature in the lives of a wide range of men involved in public acts of terror. And this leads her to draw parallels between the desensitization and power involved in the perpetration of domestic abuse and acts of public violence. She suggests that paying attention to the private violence of potential terrorists, so before they've committed any public acts of violence, honing in on men that are involved in private acts of violence could be a strong indication of whether they will commit public acts of violence. She states that men who are used to beating, kicking, choking, and stabbing women at home are considerably further along the road towards committing public acts of violence. She claims that the majority of the attackers had histories of violence towards partners, but many of them had not been prosecuted for those offences. At the heart of terrorism, she argues, are men that have been raised in misogynistic households and that are basically seeking and subscribing to misogynistic political projects that reinforce or give them a sense of male entitlement. Smith complains that both counter-terrorist analysis and left perspectives on terrorism have overlooked gender, and the, Vogue sorry, and the Vogue dimensions of these mobilizations. And she berates them for, for privileging religious explanations or claims about the repercussions of British foreign policy and overlooking the obvious, basically, around sort of gender and misogyny. For these reasons, her answer to tackling terrorism is to tackle domestic violence, to 
shift some of the resources from counterterrorism work to um, provide to, to support an under-resourced violence against women sector. She advocates a raft of measures to tackle also the normalization of domestic violence and misogyny. So just moving towards a conclusion now. So my entire lecture has been about the impact of fundamentalism on women and girls. And in that vein, Smith's argument is compelling and changes the state and challenges the state to deal with the gender dimensions of fundamentalist mobilizations. Though, of course, her terminology is completely different to mine. Um, but there are many problems with her analysis, and I'd just like you to consider these. I, I think you should read her book, but I'd also like you to think critically about what she's, what she's doing in her argument. The main one being that racial and religious supremacist formations do not only target women, actually. By bringing women into view, we should not seek to dim the light on all the other factors. Fundamentalists believe that they have a God-ordained superiority over other groups of people, whether those are non-believers or minority sects within their religion. They've been involved in a huge amount of violence towards um, non-believers or anybody sort of deemed um, blasphemers or heathens, and that's not just women. So I started with Salman Rushdie, and although challenging violence against women does need to be a state priority, that approach to supremacists alone will not stop the tide of radicalization, I think. As we know from the attack on a mosque in Christchurch in New Zealand in the same year, violence is directed at entire groups of people, entire Muslim families in this instance. Even ISIS did not only target women, they also killed hundreds of Yazidi men in an, in an attempt to completely annihilate Yazidi um, peoples. Besides that, Smith is close to reproducing the cycle of abuse theory that has been challenged by many feminist academics working in the field of violence against women and, and children. She does not address the anomaly that many boys and young men that witness or experience domestic violence in childhood do not, in fact, go on to be perpetrators of violence and abuse within households or in relationships. She distinctly leaves out cases of terrorists where there is no evidence of childhood abuse, therefore bringing in evidence that reproduces her theory. Smith has included in her book um, the cases that reproduce her own theory that the causes of terrorism are rooted in the home, and she ignores key facts, facets of those cases that point to experiences of racism and poverty, political objections to foreign policy, heartfelt concern for the plight of Syrian people, and a deep-seated affinity with fundamentalist ideologies. Because some people are involved in fundamentalist ideologies simply because they believe them to be true, and they strongly believe them to be true. So though Joanna Cook is right that a lack of attention to the gendered practices of terrorist organizations has led to a flawed response to terrorism, which has not been ready to deal with the recruitment of women and girls, such as by ISIS, the suggestion that the state has ignored gender is also not completely accurate, as decades of the war on terror were justified initially in the name of saving Afghan women. And women's rights continued to be instrumentalized by both Bush and Blair, including during the introduction of PREVENT in the UK. More recently, groups uh, from the End Violence Against Women sector wrote an open letter to the Home Secretary, raising concerns about a growing interest among counterterrorism police in domestic uh, on domestic abuse. They raised concerns about the implications of this incursion, like the involvement of counterterrorism police, 
in support in in uh, in providing support for uh, vulnerable women and children, or responding to uh, women and children that are are calling about violence and abuse. However, only a handful. Now, this is the this is the paradox that while there is good reason to be critical of counter-terrorist um, incursion on this space, um, only a handful of Borg sector organizations have ever, ever addressed the issue of racial and religious supremacism. They've been more willing to look at racial supremacism, the rise of the far right, and particularly the EDL mobilizing child sexual exploitation, than to look at fundamentalist mobilizations. Um, and so there's a big gap there. So just to finish then, I guess um, what I'm advocating is an intersectional analysis. I hope you picked that up, that we can't focus on just one aspect of what is going on. We need to have a good view of the multiple axes of power that are at play. And I draw heavily on Karima Benoun's paper, Terror Torture, to advocate a radical universalist framework which, see, which says that human rights are indivisible. You can't argue for the rights of one particular group while denigrating the rights of other people in that group, um, women and children specifically. Um, we need to oppose terror and torture so that we are actually saying something about fundamentalist violence at the same time that we're saying um, something about state um, practices and state overreach. We need to respect and ensure rights. And ultimately, we need to turn circles of indignity into circles of humanity. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.